do find your way to the book of Ruth, chapter three, as we continue our series through this remarkable book. And we've been looking at it to discover hope as a way of life and how the hope we find in God shapes everything. And today we're gonna talk about how that hope shapes our relationships. Ruth chapter three. And as we're covering the whole scene that takes place in this chapter, I'm going to pray and we're gonna read it as we go along. So keep those Bibles open, Ruth chapter three, and let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And as we open your word, would you open our hearts to receive your truth? As it pertains to our relationships, God, we pray for guidance. We pray for healing. We pray for hope in the way that we relate to one another, marriages, friendships, parents, children, dating, community relationships within the church. God, we need your guidance. We need your grace. And above all, would you teach us that our hope comes from a relationship with you? And for anyone who does not yet know that today, we pray that today they would. Holy Spirit, be our teacher. We ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Well, Mother Teresa, who spent a lifetime working in Calcutta, India, amongst the poor and destitute, she said that the worst disease that she came across was not AIDS, it was not leprosy, it was loneliness. We were made for healthy, meaningful relationships. In fact, we suffer without them. Or if they're unhealthy relationships, we suffer in them. And this morning, we remember that life is a long journey, regardless of how young or how old you are. This life is long and it is full of many joys, but also difficulties. And through it all, we need relationships. I believe that not only for you to just survive, but to thrive along this journey, you need these meaningful relationships, not just networks, not just classmates or employees or acquaintances or fans, if some of you have those, but people you can relate to, people you can relate with. I know for myself, some of the greatest transformation that I've experienced in my life has come through meaningful relationships. My wife, the almost 20 years that we've been married, the transformation that has happened through that. I think of my my friends who now, pushing on decades, have been such a transformative influence in my life. The times when I've needed to be challenged have come through those relationships. The times that I've needed to be encouraged has come in the context of relationship. But how is that to happen? Well, before us today is the story of a woman named Ruth. And here in chapter three, it is a powerful picture of a transformative relationship, an example for all of us of how people relating to one another in the right ways can bring about good change. 
Ruth is a Moabite. She married into an Israelite family only to be widowed some years later. And upon her arrival in the land of Israel, she's a widow. But it just so happens in God's providence that she ended up in the field looking for food owned by a man who honored God and who also takes notice of her. Now, as the story goes on, they will eventually marry. But here we note the way in which they relate to one another because it teaches us important lessons for relationships and how it all points to the very heart of the Christian faith. And I want us to ask this morning, friends, what are we looking for from our relationships? How do we conduct ourselves in our relationships? And where do we find hope for our relationships? First of all, in Ruth chapter three, we see the need for relationships. When Ruth and her also widowed mother-in-law, Naomi, when they came back to her homeland, to Israel, their initial plan was to scrape together just enough so that they could exist. Knowing that as widows, they would have very little chance of surviving. There was no government support, no social service. They could not work. They could not get jobs. So they were scraping around for food. But now Naomi, the mother-in-law, she's energized by the fact that Ruth met Boaz while looking for grain in the fields of Israel. Boaz owns land. He is single. He is godly. He is wealthy. And he showed romantic interest in Ruth. Naomi now sees this like a good mother-in-law of a widow, sees this as an opportunity that can bring them both what they need. And what is that? Well, what Naomi wants for Ruth in this relationship is really what we long for in all of our relationships, even though it's in different ways, rest and support. Notice in verse one of Ruth three, one day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi said to her, my daughter, I must find a home or in Hebrew, and some translations translate it literally rest. I need to find rest for you where you will be well provided for. What does she want for her widowed daughter-in-law? She wants rest and she wants support. What is it that we're often longing for in all of our relationships, friendships, family? We're looking for rest and we are looking for support that our relationships would be like a refuge, even if they vary in different ways. In terms of rest, marrying Boaz for Ruth meant her full integration into Israelite society. As a foreigner, this meant it would be the opposite of alienation. She would know where she belonged. She could settle down. Her marriage would mean that she would have a family, that she would have a home, that she would have a future. But it also points to support. Notice at the end of that, she says, Ruth, I want you to find a home where you can also find support because Ruth's marriage to Boaz would mean practical provision, not just for Ruth, but also for Naomi, for them both. Now, I think this is very important to note. It's a, it's a brief point, but I do think it's vital because great thinkers throughout the ages have often pointed out that there's three ways that you can look at relationships. The old philosophers used to talk about it like this. Some people 
view relationships as being built on usefulness. In other words, the people around you, they're just a stepping stone. Oh, this person can get me connected with those people. They can provide for me what I need, but it's nothing more than that. And then I'm going to move on from them. They're disposable like batteries. I get a little bit of energy from them. And when I'm done with them, I then discard them and replace them with other people. Those are relationships built on usefulness. But another type is friendships built on and relationships built on amusement. Just, hey, I'm looking for a good time. I just want to have fun. I don't want to talk about anything deep, meaningful, transformative, life-changing, challenging, accountable. I just want to have fun. And oftentimes our relationships are built on either usefulness or amusement. But the greatest thinkers have observed that the greatest qualities we need are relationships built on virtue. What does that mean? It means relationships that support one another. Relationships where you learn to carry one another's burdens. Relationships where you are side by side, strengthening one another. Now that is certainly pictured in marriage. Husbands, wives, for those of you married here or joining us online, for those of you who are married, we need to view our marriages as spaces where we carry one another, where we strengthen one another. But this is also true of our friendships. This is also true of relationships within the church. Coming along one another, like the New Testament says, carrying one another's burdens. Though it might be in different ways and to different degrees, this should be the desire for our relationships. And I want you to keep this in mind. God created us for this. God designed us with a need for relationships. If you go back to the beginning of the Bible, we were created to be interdependent on one another. There is a natural need that is not a part of sin, that is not a part of this fallen world, but existed before sin came into this world. A natural God built in need that we have to rely on one another. And in the best of times, in the best of contexts, we can serve as a refuge for one another. I say all that to say this. For those of you who might think that you are above that and you don't need that, you come to church and you keep everyone at arm's length, you're like, well, I show up, but I don't need these humans. I mean, they might need me possibly, but I certainly don't need them. If that's you, friend, listen, don't be proud. Don't be so proud that you don't admit that you need others. God designed this. You actually need others. In in the Western culture, we often so highly value independence that we forget that we're meant to be interdependent. That's why the church is called a body. We're not just a collection of isolated individuals. We're a community. Don't be too proud in thinking that you don't need other people. None of us here can say to one another, I don't need you. You can't say that. So for those of you who are proud, an encouragement for you. But also for those of you who feel ashamed, where you're like, I know I need help, but I don't want to ask for it. Brother or sister, if that's you, this is exactly the type of environment you're meant to ask for help. Don't be ashamed of that. We're meant to be a support to one another. The church is meant to be a place of rest where we can find that support as we learn to depend on one another in healthy and right ways. 
But what are those healthy and right ways? You say, yes, I understand that. But what about when people are codependent? What about when they're like overbearing or controlling? Well, that's what we find in the second point. First of all, we see the need for relationships. God created us with this need. And at best, we can provide rest and support for one another. It's what Naomi was longing for Ruth and for herself. But secondly, we note the search for relationships. How does Ruth then carry this out? How does Boaz then carry this out? Well, this is the bulk of our passage. How do we go about finding and maintaining these relationships? Or if I can put it another way, what are the marks of healthy relationships? Because as we know, not all relationships bring rest. Some of them bring ruin. Don't say amen. How can we avoid that? <laughs> Especially if you're married. <laughs> amen. <laughs> Should go to the prayer ministry later. Um, well, the story of Ruth and Boaz here is a romantic one. And for that reason, it can provide some lessons for those of you pursuing a romantic relationship if you're joining us and you're, you're dating. But also, I want you to notice that the principles highlighted here are also broader than that. And they apply to all of our relationships, whether you're single or you're married, young, old, man or woman. So notice what's happening here. Naomi, the mother-in-law, she sees an opportunity. At this time of year, all the farmers would be down harvesting in the fields. It was a big community event. It was a threshing floor slumber party, if you will. All the farmers would go down, they would thresh out the wheat and they would all sleep there like an outdoor camp. And that night, Boaz would not be alone. That's an important detail. He was not there sleeping alone. He was amongst community, but he would also be accessible. And this sets the scene. Read in verse two through six. Now Boaz, Naomi says, with whose women you have worked is a relative of ours. And tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So Ruth, wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. Before there was eHarmony, before there was ChristianMingle.net, there was Naomi. And she is making it happen. If you're looking for like an idea for a Christian dating app, you can call it Naomi. So Ruth is told to wait until everyone is asleep in this community event and to take the opportunity that she would otherwise not have elsewhere. And she is to put on perfume. But please note, this isn't just like, hey, look good, smell good. This is actually a sign that her mourning period as a widow had come to an end. It was symbolic in putting on the perfume and putting on the, the nice clothes. It was a symbol that her mourning period for her dead husband had now come to an end. She was now looking for marriage. Upon her arrival, she would uncover his feet, as we're told in the text. What did she do? Did she tickle them? I don't know. The text does not tell us. But so as to wake him up without waking up the others. And her hope that her visit was interpreted as a question about marriage. We read verses seven through nine. 
When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. (laughs) Who are you? He asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. This is beautiful. Now here's why. Some of you are like, what does that mean? Let me explain. Whether Naomi's strategy was actually wise, you might think, gosh, is it really wise to send your like widowed daughter-in-law out in the middle of the night to like a bunch of men out on the fields? Well, whether it was wise would depend on how Boaz conducted himself. It was a vote of confidence from Naomi that he would conduct himself in a worthy manner. But I want you to note that this story creates two difficulties that leave us a little tense at this point. Difficulty number one, this scene provides a potential context for temptation. It's middle of the night, nobody else can see, there's other people there, but here's Ruth, she's expressing her desire for marriage. There's Boaz, what's he gonna do? How would he respond late at night in this moment? That's difficulty number one. It could be a context for temptation. Difficulty number two, this scene also prevents or or presents a moral or an ethical dilemma pertaining to marriage and the laws of the land. He explains in verse 10 through the beginning of verse 13. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. So here's the question. How would Boaz respond? How would both of them respond to the potential tempting situation, and also this moral dilemma, which will be explained in a moment. But please do not miss these two qualities, two qualities that should not only mark what you look for in a romantic relationship, but it should mark all of our relationships. And those two qualities are honorable character and honest conviction. Let me repeat it. Honorable character and honest conviction. First of all, honorable character. What we mean by that is behaving in such a way that honors the right kind of boundaries. Notice first in verse 11, Boaz takes notice of Ruth's noble character. He notices that. He notes her maturity. But how does he respond in this moment? Here's this younger widowed woman coming to him in the middle of the night showing her interest in marriage, if he took advantage of her on that night, it would not be right in God's eyes. It would ruin her reputation and it would possibly jeopardize a marriage. And yet, friends, notice it is all handled delicately so as to avoid sexual misconduct. And whenever anyone is in such a tempting situation. 
with someone who is not your spouse, if you're in a dating relationship, for example, or you're engaged, showing honorable character means honoring boundaries. It means not taking advantage of one another. If you are married, it means being faithful within your marriage and not flirting outside of the marriage. If you're not married, but pursuing someone, you wanna do so in a way that honors biblical boundaries because marital intimacy is reserved for a marital covenant. You don't get to enjoy this kind of intimacy, physical intimacy, without the vows, without the covenant. God guards that. That's why sexual immorality is forbidden, not because sex is bad, but because it is sacred. Maybe some of you need to hear that, or some of you need to be reminded of that. Honorable character. Are you honoring the right kind of boundaries? But this application, of course, can become broader. In our friendships and within community here in the church, we are not to take advantage of one another. But rather, we are to show honorable character in the way that we relate to other men, in the way that we relate to other women, by recognizing and honoring healthy boundaries and motives. But how do we know what those are? You're like, okay, I get the thing, I need to show honorable character, but what exactly does that mean? Well, that's the, the second subpoint. We see here honest conviction. Here's what I mean by that. Behaving in a way that is in line with what you believe. Boaz, please don't miss this. Boaz is a man who is governed by something bigger than himself. That happens, we see that in verse 12. Boaz, and this explains the guardian redeemer question. Boaz is a part of this large family, this clan, if you will. And he is a potential guardian redeemer. What does that mean? If you read the Bible, a guardian redeemer was a relative who had the opportunity to purchase land that was mortgaged through a death, because of a death, so that it would remain in the clan. They could also buy back family members who had sold themselves into slavery because of their debt. Or if there was a widow without children or people in need, they could then marry them and continue the family. In short, a guardian redeemer could rescue a relative out of poverty and give them a brand new start. That's what Ruth was talking about when she said, will you marry me? Will you become my guardian redeemer? And Boaz expresses his intent. Yes, I would love to become your guardian redeemer. I would love to have a marriage and continue this family. But that leads to the second problem. There is a closer relative that he must speak with first according to law and custom. And Boaz knows that he must not cut corners. That's what I want you to see. Instead, he makes it a matter of priority to deal rightly with the matter. He says, there's a right way to do this and I'm not gonna take shortcuts. I need to go sort this out amongst the community and with this other relative. This needs to be done in the right way. And here's why this is key to the story. If the matter was not dealt with rightly, then the marriage would be called into question. 
And the bigger theme here is that he's honest about his convictions. He's honest about what is right and what is wrong. And this governs his relationships. Boaz is not a lawbreaker. He is a law keeper. He could not, would not cut corners for his own pleasure. And friends, we've got to ask, well, where do our convictions come from? For example, if you're, if you're not married, you're dating and you're sleeping with that person, you're saying, I am above God. I am above, I make my own rules. If I'm stealing from another person, I'm acting as if I'm a, above God, I govern myself. If you're manipulating or controlling somebody else in the church, you're acting as if you're above God. And I want you to listen and take note that we have a picture here of a man and a woman who are governed by something that is bigger than themselves. And for Boaz, the word of God is not some kind of cold, moralistic institution. It's loving, fatherly instruction. God's guidance, God's laws, God's word is not meant to hinder your relationship. It's actually meant to help your relationships. It's meant to, to grow you. It's meant to mature you. All this aspects about honoring one another, it's because God has a design. There's a way in which we are to relate one another so that we do not violate one another. We honor God's design in this. So whether it is a, a friend or a family member, husband or a wife, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a brother or a sister, our ideas and beliefs about right boundaries must come from God's word. The right kind of behavior. How do I know how to behave? How do I know that honorable, what honorable conduct is all about? We've got to have honest convictions. And we must keep in mind that the Bible's teaching on all relationships is not meant to hinder you. God is not some kind of cosmic killjoy, but there is a design. There is an intent in how he's called us to live amongst one another. So what should you look for in others? Relationships, husbands, wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, friendships, community life. What should you seek to develop in your own life? Honorable character and honest convictions. But even the best of relationships by themselves are not enough. Even the best of human relationships are merely a signpost to a greater source. And that's what leads us to our last point, the hope for relationships. Do not miss this. Boaz and Ruth are not yet married, but please note this. In the next statement, it shows that they're building their relationship on a truth that is deeper than their affection, greater than their circumstances. It is the reality of God. And this is what shapes and directs their relationships and it should shape and direct ours. And when it does, we find our hope. Where do we see that? At the end of verse 13, Boaz continues his speech saying, but if that relative is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Where does Boaz get his hope from? Where does he get his direction from? As the Lord lives, that God exists, that he is living. That directs his decision-making. As the Lord surely lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. And so she lay at his feet until morning, verse 14, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. And when she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to the town. 
When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi, she asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he also gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Why did Boaz behave in such a way? What is it that they're immediately building their relationship around? The reality that the Lord lives. As surely as the Lord lives, because God is real, because he exists, that shapes how I relate with one another. That's where I get my hope. That's where I get my guidance. That's what determines how I relate with all other people. Does God exist? Yes, he does. Should I live like it? Yes, I should. As surely as the Lord lives, I will treat other people in this way. And so the stage is set. Boaz makes a promise and as a symbol of his promise, loads her up with food for her and her mother-in-law. And their last verse, Naomi said in verse 18, wait or rest my daughter until you find out what happens for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. What's her conclusion? When she hears about where Boaz gets his priorities from, Ruth can rest. In other words, your life could not be in better hands. And this is beautiful, friends, because Ruth is not only a record of how a foreigner was brought into Israel, but a picture of how we are all brought into a relationship with God. And this leads us to the heart of Christian faith. The reason we are often so desperate, frustrated, and disappointed in our search for relationships, the Bible says, is because we are all, first and foremost, alienated from God because of our sin. We have turned away from him. We put ourselves in his place and we look to other relationships to find what we need, which can ultimately come from God. And that's what turns them into toxic and sinful relationships. But every one of us, we need to know this. Finding rest in relationships with others requires first finding rest in a relationship with God. And that's what we're inviting everyone into today. And the good news is that we can have this relationship because beyond the promise that Boaz made that night is a promise that God made to all humanity, a promise that would come through Boaz and Ruth's family line, that one day a true and better redeemer, Jesus Christ would come, the ultimate man of his word who would bring us rest through a relationship with himself, a relationship which is mirrored in the actions of Boaz because Boaz here is just a foreshadow of Jesus who would love us and provide us and protect protect us. And so in many ways, this is a picture of what Christ provides for us. He accepts us. Boaz could have turned Ruth away, but he does not. God could have turned us away, but he does not. And he speaks a word of assurance for us. Fear not. Jesus protects us. You see, here's what I love about this story. Anyone who wanted to mock Ruth because she was a Moabite would be silenced by Boaz because he did not cut corners. He went through the process and he did it right. And so it is with Jesus Christ. When God accepted us, he did not overlook our sin. He doesn't pretend that our sins and our wrongs doesn't matter. He sent Jesus to pay for our sins. And that means that when God accepts us, he is not unjust in accepting us. And that protects us against accusations from the devil and from others. Christ fulfilled the law for us and paid for our failure when we have failed to fulfill the law, taking the penalty in our place. So anyone who says, you don't belong here, you don't belong in the church, you can simply say, I know, but my redeemer took care of it. And that's why I have a place here because I have a redeemer who did not cut corners. I have a redeemer who came to save me and accept me and embrace me and 
pay for all of my sin so that I could have a place. He did not rest until the matter of my salvation was settled. Amen? Amen. That is our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in doing so, he redeems us. Like Boaz, Jesus stood between us and our poverty. And not only like Boaz does he calm our fears, but he made a promise about the future. And it's all based on his work. Your life could not be in better hands than the hands of Jesus. And when you put him at the center, you can rest because you have a redeemer who will not rest until your redemption is complete. Will you trust him? Hebrews chapter seven, verse 25 says, therefore Jesus is able once and forever to save all those who come to God through him because he lives forever to intercede with God on our behalf. This is the gospel. So how do we view our relationships with others? Boaz is an example. Because the Lord lives, I can now learn to relate rightly to other people. Because the Lord lives, you can find guidance for your relationships. Put God at the center. Say, because the Lord lives, God, I wanna know how to treat rightly honoring boundaries, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my friends, my family members. I wanna honor my wife. I wanna honor my husband. Because the Lord lives, you can find grace for your failures. Maybe some of you are here this morning and you're like, you know what, I've crossed those boundaries. I've been engaged in immorality. I've been engaged in sin. It could be abuse, it could be immorality, manipulation. The Holy Spirit convicts you today and turns you from that. You need to turn from it, but a way has been provided for you to be forgiven and to have a fresh start and a clean heart today. Put him at the center. Because the Lord lives, you can find rest. For all the people who have failed you, even your spouse doesn't live up to your full expectations, you need to put God at the center and say, because the Lord lives, I can find renewed strength for my marriage. Because the Lord lives, I can find renewed guidance for my friendships. Because the Lord lives, I can live pure in a relationship with my boyfriend or girlfriend. Because the Lord lives, I can treat my children well. Because the Lord lives, I can care for my parents. Because the Lord lives, I can rest. Amen. I pray that all of you trust in that rest today. Let's pray. Father, I pray first and foremost for those here today who do not yet know you. I pray if there's any man or woman in this parking lot or joining us online that has never trusted in Jesus and put Jesus at the center, I pray that right now, in this moment, they would say, Jesus, I trust in you as my savior. I put you at the center. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe that you rose again from the grave and that you are living right now to help me, transform me, forgive me, and bring me with you into eternity. Lord, if there's anyone here, I pray, who does not know you, that they would put their trust and faith in you right now. And friend, if you're listening right now, if that's you, I just invite you to do that. Say, Jesus, save me. And Father, for those who are weighed down with guilt because perhaps they have not been acting an honorable character, may they listen to the sweet conviction of your spirit who does not reveal these truths to condemn them, but to turn them back to you. And I pray that they would know that in repentance, they can find 
a clean heart and a fresh start and they can start anew and afresh today. May they rest in that. And Father, for those of us who just need hope for difficult relationships, guidance, may we put you at the center and say, because the Lord lives, I can move forward. May we all experience that as true today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, as this is a time of response, we don't wanna lose what the Holy Spirit is doing in this moment. If there is sin that needs to be confessed, confess it to the Lord, knowing that Jesus has paid for it. He didn't cut corners. He paid fully for your redemption. And for all of us, as we celebrate that, the communion of elements are available at the tents. You can go there and eat the bread and drink the cup, remembering what Jesus Christ has done for you. If you need prayer for healing or for guidance, you're in difficult relationships, come and pray. Get up out of your chair and come pray with the men and women by the prayer team signs wearing the, the t-shirts. Go and pray with them. Ask God to move. Put God at the center. And for all of us, as we sing together, let's do that. Let's say, because the Lord lives, I'm gonna put him first. Because the Lord lives, I can find strength. Because the Lord lives, I can find rest. So let's do that now as we focus on him.